0: it's maybe not so difficult to get one sensational shot into to the One Sensational Shot Network. A very warm welcome. This is the first evening glass of our new season, and I'm going to try and hit the ground running. My name's Fletcher Walton. I'm joined with Luke Littleboy. Let's fill in the listeners. Let's bring them up to speed. Number one, the Cineworld boycott continues, and the reason we're boycotting Cineworld is because they refuse to pay the living wage and the London living wage, and that's something that we believe in strongly. And I think that as we grow up and as we get a little bit of extra money in our pockets from the gigs that we do, we should always consider what we're paying for, where we're putting our money, what something costs, what its value is, what its worth is, what it costs and why it is cheap. Luke and I have both had... Uh, how many years did you have on the world card?
1: Oh, wow. Uh, not as many as you, but like a good five <laughs> years, say. Five years, I reckon.
0: And I had ten years. Uh, I, I gave it up 14 months ago. My first film on it was Hot Fuzz. I can't even remember the last film. Uh, so I had it a full 120-odd months and I rinsed it like a bastard for a long time. But it comes to a point where you do have to ask, what is the cost of that? And in this case, the cost was being passed down to the people that work for Cineworld and being treated shabbily. And we decided that we couldn't in good conscience give them our money any longer just in the same way that you should be responsible with the way that you shop it's a tricky one you know i like avocados as well and i understand that they're, <laughs> they're, they're um their carbon the footprint is example. relatively high isn't it you know <laughs> yeah um, it is. i only got and i've only been into avocados for a couple of years almost exactly a couple of years but we i'm very it's... lucky because they um they give me a
1: tummy ache so oh i got that i got that going for me
0: well maybe they do the same for me but i had thought it was that i was making when i'm at work i've got three rivita on which i place seven eight or nine <laughs> cherry tomatoes cut in half i know but you do i remember I, it well if i'm uh if i'm really spoiling myself then i'll crush up and at uh, half an avocado with lime wow. juice put into it yeah. stir in a bit of mustard but also sometimes raw onion and i thought it was the raw onion raw onion right. is
1: like a big uh, like a big sucker punch to my my stomach but yeah that does it too so that's a that is a one two punch there Fletch <laughs> for the double the double whammy I need
0: to run some tests uh, <laughs> to el- eliminate and then reintroduce into my diet elements of those two things but uh, you know just thinking about coming into this episode thinking about why we do boycott Cineworld, world it started with my union back to but I think that it speaks broadly not only to Luke, the politics that Luke and I have but also once you get into a band like um, Minor Threat or Nirvana or whatever their modern equivalents are, and I'm not sure what people in 2018 are listening to, but it, amazingly, Kurt Cobain is still extraordinarily popular with young people, with teenagers. They still see him as the icon that I did when he went, when I was only I 11 years old. I see kids with
1: those hoodies walking up and down the street. They're still there.
0: Yeah, alive and yeah, well. the, yeah. yeah, the smiley face. Yeah, the smiley face but once you get into those bands once you get into independent cinema you start it's important that you take that level of understanding and apply it elsewhere and just consider where does my food come from who is paying for this et cetera. Et cetera. so i hope that you'll join with us and there'll always be on our website onesensationalshot.com a little bit of information and literature on the boycott we understand if you're stuck for choice so many people are you know i've just um i've been up north recently and you see that there are there are towns that aren't served by cinemas, and some towns only have a cinema world. Funnily enough, Luke and I used to live in Ealing together. Ealing, Ealing doesn't have a cinema. It's been nine years without a cinema. Just about it's got, nine years.
1: It's got um, a building site uh, for yeah. around that nine years that has a big... <laughs> it's got cladding and it, and it says empire cinema coming soon but yeah my word they must be building an empire rome wasn't built in a <coughs> day wasn't Fletch. not nor is the empire cinema in ealing which is uh, apparent is i'm assuming it's still a building site am i right
0: yeah it still is yeah it's it's in its at least seventh year as a building site uh, <laughs> I, luke and i moved in it was it's four and a half years since we moved in together and it was a building site then it's a building site now it remains a work in progress so ealing is a Borough, Ealing is, a, Ealing is a neighbourhood in London which has a studios, a film studios, but lacks a cinema. And mm. furthering the point, I think, as well, is that our closest cinema was Hammersmith Cineworld in April 16. They closed that one down. So then they took the one in Chelsea as well. And you realise, well, not, I mean, not only am I giving my money to uh, uh, a less caring, more faceless conglomerate, which can well afford to pay the living wage and the london living wage to its staff but decides not to not only is that the case but then they aren't they are no longer serving their communities and that something is wrong when the only uh, exhibition the only film exhibition in ealing and hammersmith uh, has been taken away and now the closest is shepherd's bush shepherd's bush view which right. i go to occasionally for big films like three or four times a year yeah so uh, please get on the website to check that out now as i mentioned i've been up north I had a wonderful time visiting the East Yorkshire coast, the East Riding of Yorkshire, my first time, I think my first time in that area, we managed to get along to York to saw-thumb retro games run by Lee and Roy. Now, Lee's a fellow with whom I've been in conversation for months and months and months. Ever since, like, November last year, he took a bulk delivery of laser discs. He decided to get into the laser market. Within a week or two, I'd said, listen, his... I gave him 30 or 40 quid across PayPal and said, I'm not quite sure what I want. Let's put down that deposit. And you'll send them to me, or I'll get along to the store. I'm not quite sure how we'll do it. And I had in mind Matawan and Heart of Darkness by Rogue, and there was a few other discs that I was dead set on. Finally, I got the opportunity to go along there, and I'll tell you all a bit, little bit about my haul later on, um, mm-hmm. which I was yeah I was very pleased with. But addition in addition to that, so Saw Thumb specializes in the last 30 years of video gaming excellence. As, astonishingly, as I was in there, so this was Friday, Friday afternoon, half past five, I'm in there rifling through the discs, and a bloke comes in and buys a Mega Drive with Sonic the Hedgehog, carrying with him a deck chair that he just purchased, and I thought to myself, well, that there's a man that's sorted for the weekend. If it's bright <laughs> outside, then he's going to transport the old CRT into the garden and play in the sunshine, perhaps with some kind of jerry-rigged cardboard contraption over the television. Uh, and if it rains, then he will just stay indoors. But So I was expecting people to come in and be buying SNES games. But to for someone to think, yeah, I want a Mega Drive. Um, this
1: retro gaming thing is its becoming a big deal. It's going through hmm. some sort of renaissance, like the kind of vinyl mm. revival. Um, I know that my little brother Seth, who is currently resident of Liverpool, his housemate and himself have started up like a retro store in um, in one of these kind of antique places that's a converted factory or whatever, X factory, and and there's people with their stools selling their wares, and yeah, oh. they're specialising in uh, in retro video games of the past thirty years or so. So they're in on this too, and uh, they're selling stuff for you know for what it's worth, I suppose. Yeah. And uh, and and that's that's to be commended. Yeah, I'm a big Sonic the Hedgehog fan. There's a there's a place I've noticed down. Um, St. Stephen's Street in uh, Norwich as well, here where I am, which is also doing the same thing. And I I peer through the window, because when I'm walking home from work, it's already closed, and I peer through the window to look inside, and yes, you're right, I can see the various SNES games and Mega Drive games of my youth. But what particularly impressed me with the place in Norwich was on the wall, they had Street Fighter 2 action figures carded uh, on the blister, uh, and they they were the GI Joe Street Fighter 2 crossover brand crossover of the very early 90s it was just when the GI Joe action figure range was beginning to decline and they were looking at whatever they could do to try and keep the the toy line vital and one of the things they did was have a crossover with Capcom Street Fighter 2 and i had i had one figure from that set which was uh, Ryu and, uh, yeah that was those were the days when Street Fighter 2 the movie was out and uh, which I still occasionally watch when it comes on the telly, when it's on ITV2 at about one in the morning. I will watch the Street Fighter film and watch Kylie Minogue uh, try and act her way out of a paper bag alongside Jean-Claude Van Damme. Heady days, Fletch, the early 90s. Where's Studi, Raoul
0: Hulia. I think one of the preferred Raoul Hulia roles for even many Raoul Julia fans. He didn't live much longer. He was very ill even while filming. Simon Callow I didn't think was particularly good in it but Julia, it's one of those performances where an actor turns up knowing it's well beneath him but goes for it anyway Mm. Uh, there's a particular line that's enjoyed by the online community I'm sorry I don't remember any of it You don't remember? For you the day bison graced your village was the most important day
1: of your life. But for me, it was Tuesday.
0: That's Stephen E. D'Souza. That's a kind of classic Stephen E. D'Souza who had a hand in writing many of the pictures that we enjoy from the 80s and 90s. So he worked on Die Hard, although I attribute the good stuff to Jeb Stewart, in the same Mm. way that If it's Jurassic Park, I always say, well, it's John Sayles. I'm deciding that the best stuff is always John Sayles. I don't want it to be anybody else. Stephen E. D'Souza also worked on Commando, and there's a bunch of mid-range stuff. Um, But I suppose our our modern action marketplace owes a lot to him, although I prefer stuff like Martin Brest's Beverly Hills Cop, which is kind of just elevated slightly above the the solid three out of five Arnie actioners like Commando and mm. Red Heat and Raw Deal but I think there's something to be something to be done with Street Fighter and I don't mean a gritty reboot because what they were trying to do did work quite well it was almost uh, a sixties Batman style campy mm. outlandish day glow confection yeah because Blanca was in it wasn't he and you see him and yeah I don't want three hundred million thrown at it but imagine if today they threw 100, hundred, hundred and twenty million at it with some kind of a dream cast, but gave it to um, uh, put it put it perhaps in the comedy milieu, or at least like tongue thir- tongue th- firmly in cheek, and with Greg Mottola, for instance, or the even the Russo brothers who worked on Arrested Development and now yeah. have well, worked all that time on the Marvel pictures. I bet they could get something really fun and light out of it. The kind of um. The kind of levity which has been lost in too much action over the last ten, twelve years, basically since Dark Knight, isn't it really? Since Batman begins and Dark Knight. Everything's everything... supposed to
1: have some kind of gravitas now.
0: Yeah, yeah, just it, it they are conflicting, that they it's not compatible, essentially,
1: a lot of the time. Um yeah. but please I've, I've been looking forward to uh have you seen this new have you seen the trailers to the new uh Dwayne Johnson The Rock? Film, Uh is it called High Rise? Not called High Skyscraper. Rise? Called? Skyscraper. Yeah. yeah, skyscraper. And that to me looks like you know a heavy dose of the '80s uh, coming back in in, yeah. in terms of action cinema. I'm quite looking forward to it in its own way. It reminds me of a Jackie Chan
0: picture which was mooted at the end of the century, where Jackie plays a window cleaner on the World Trade Center. I'll give you one guess why that went into turnaround and uh, development hell. I-, I just wonder if they're connected in some way, in the same way that. I think it was the producer, John Peters, who was insistent on having mechanical spiders in something. And he was, pushed yeah. it up on the, spider, the Superman project and eventually yep. got it into Wild Wild West. But he'd had that idea for yeah. seven, eight years. I don't know it, if it would like in that into, any longer.
1: It, it crops up in two or three scripts throughout the 90s of Giant Mechanical Spider. Yeah. <laughs> 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 it's Superman yeah. one week, it's Will Smith the next. Whoever it is, that spider's getting in there.
0: It really does feel megalomaniacal in a way that I can almost appreciate, Uh, like Michael Lerner's studio executive in Barton Fink, you know, sitting back in a chair, chomping a cigar, saying, yeah, I want this, I I don't care, just make it work, otherwise you're fired, (laughs) I want my mechanical fucking spiders now! (laughs) Cocaine dreams of Hollywood 1994, brilliant stuff. Saw Thumb Retro Games, before I forget, Saw Thumb Retro Games on the Gilly Gate in York, do stop by... They've got a Laserdisc selection, I suppose that's a very niche interest. It's only really me that's going there for that. Wonderful selection of games upon which they're very knowledgeable, and then one of the treats for me. Now, I've got all these toys, but then to see my He-Man figures, my Star Wars figures, and my Mask figures in a cabinet displayed, not in any particular order or anything, but just to remind me, oh, dang, yeah, I have got those, and then to also think, actually, let me write this down, so that's £6... I can get that one for £12. Because <laughs> I, I wasn't sure if Star Wars, out of its box, went for any money anymore. I know boxed and mint, it's still... Um, you can the still vintage, charge uh, bomb.
1: The, the, the vintage figures will always retain some value. When it Kenners, when, when, yeah. When you're getting into the 90s and beyond, it, it's maybe not so much. But certainly the, the vintage stuff in the 70s, 80s, will always retain some degree of value. And the, the Kenners... Uh, yeah, the Kenners from 80 and
0: 83... Still, I was pleased to see her still going for six pounds, eight pounds, ten pounds, even without their weapons. There was a wicket with his staff, which I think was ten or twelve. Luckily, they don't really. The uh, price is not proportionate to the stature. Otherwise, <laughs> uh, Rancor would be <clears throat> two hundred and twenty pounds. I've got the Rancor. It's a fun one because he worked with the other toys you had. Because he could just be a monster, a, a monster attacking the He-Man, or a, any number of things. You know, worked with yeah. masks as well, and the mask men fit in his mouth too, like whole. I think I've got a couple rattling around in the rancor still.
1: <laughs> so oh, this really... sounds like a cool little <laughs> place. Is it? Is is it big, or is it like a little Aladdin's cave? Like, what, what's the kind of setup? It's big enough. It's it's big enough. I suppose it's probably
0: the same um, the same square footage as your typical barbers or mm. butchers. And that's what's replaced it now. Uh, we Bakers, used to have <laughs> yeah, candlestick, candlestick makers. makers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we used to have that on the high street, and now we have um, uh, beard oil shops and retro games markets. But uh, I don't find myself up north very often, but next time I am, I'll be going back in there again. I hope to get a few pictures with the fellas and speak to them a little bit longer, and I might even bring back some... You know, I think I might... Next time I'm in Felixstar, I think I'll bring my Master System 2 back with me. I've only got 20-odd games. Um, What, you mean you're going to set it up at home? I think so, yeah. Just just as a fun thing, because the the other thing is that uh, there's a lot of nostalgia around these games. If you start playing them, you realise they're not that fun. They're good for about 20 minutes. Now, Bubble Bobble's fantastic, and Asterix, which is a Castle of Illusion clone, but in my opinion, substantially better. Those are still classic. I could play both of those for two or three hours at a time, but most games uh is is this your experience I find that oh yeah they' yeah, finished yeah, yeah. or they're not that good,
1: yeah, completely, and you go back and you play this stuff, you realize that um it's it's either not that good, so you only play it for twenty minutes or the you realize that it was before the time of saving and this kind of thing and and the difficulty <laughs> level because it was supposed <laughs> to keep you going for months or weeks at yeah. a time. the difficulty level is is completely unforgiving, and you yeah. think. I'm 30 years old. I don't need this. I'm done. (laughs) In in 20 minutes, you throw the controller down. Uh, What what I've been thinking of doing, uh, because I've had a bit of a retro game itch uh, I've wanted to scratch too, and this is a little blasphemous and uh, a bit of a legal grey area, but I do own many of the old uh, cartridges and such, and uh, you can get what, what they call a Raspberry Pi mini computer. It's a very small kind of circuit board that you can install an operating system on, uh, and then put some casing around it. And there's an operating system called RetroPie. And then you can install all the old emulators for Genesis, uh, you know, um, Mega Drive, Master System, SNES, PlayStation... And then you can install the ROMs to, to play them. So you can have thousands and thousands of games on this thing, which only costs you 50, 60 quid with some retro, with some uh, USB controllers made to look like SNES controllers. And I've been looking into this, and this is something I want to do. Of course, from a legal standpoint, I should only only be installing the ROMs of the cartridges of which I already own. But uh, nevertheless, in terms of like the portability of it and uh, the usability, because you can obviously plug it straight in HDMI in your new modern telly, um, that's uh, that's a really good way to go and there's there's a there's a big culture of that and a big community of uh, the 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 raspberry pi uh, running retro pi online so yeah I'd urge people to check that out if uh, if if that appeals
0: that is perfectly legit isn't it to in in you've paid for it once mm. and I'm not just saying that to cover ourselves it's my genuine opinion that it is perfectly legit like for instance when I'm at work, for instance, listening to an entire album on YouTube, like Mac DeMarco Two or Salad Days, well, I've got those albums. I paid my money for that. I go to see them on. So if I feel like I've done my bit there, and you can do your bit as well by visiting the one sensational shop, <laughs> eBay, which we've recently opened. Uh, again, it's going to be a little bit niche. There's a lot of laser discs on there, but we've got VHS dvd criterion collection dvd out from the states there's posters there will be tickets trinkets once luke gets his retro games swerve on then there'll be all of that as well um we thought it would be a better way to support us and donate to us than just the usual kind of give us a tenner so get along to that and we've got this all over the facebook now as well um many images that we're uploading and I think there's a certain kind of nostalgic appeal to some of the tapes that we found and the, uh, the old junk that I'm going through in my household as well. What are you going to be
1: selling, Luke, if anything? <laughs> um, I sold loads of stuff when I was still living with you in London to pay for my now wife's uh, engagement ring. <laughs> so I sold loads of stuff, loads of old uh, vintage games and um, a lot of CDs. I went from 1,000 CDs to around 300 I think you've got got some of them. Although Oof. I have realised yep. I'm, on, I'm on a new <laughs> CD. Uh, it's, the CDs are funny. It's a buyer's market at the moment. And I've been buying a lot of Prince CDs that I missed out on a few years ago. Uh, so I've got all of his Warner Brothers output. Uh, but what I've been doing is filling in some of the blanks from the post-Warner Brothers era. A lot of stuff that's out of print and it's not readily available on Spotify. Although I have seen that Sony Music have just inked a deal with the Prince estate to re-release a lot of that stuff that from the, from the mid-90s onwards that has long been out of print. But I have been filling in the blanks with some CDs. Um, I've just got the Emancipation album from 1996 and uh, one or two others as well, which has been really good fun. And you know what? You do you do listen to things in a different way when you, when you do own it physically. I spin a lot of vinyl these days, but even sitting down with a Prince CD album, I, I sit in the back room and I do listen to it more or less from beginning to end as opposed to dipping in and out with uh, with, with the Spotify, with the streaming, uh, like, like I do. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I need. We're going to move house again in September. I'm sure there'll be things that come to light but uh, th- that I can sell on there. Um, some wonderful little nuggets of nostalgia. So d- do check out. If you go to onesensationalshot.com, there's a little link on there uh, which just says shop. So you can go there, go to the shop, and check out our wares. It does help to fund just the day-to-day running of of the website. So we thought we'd avoid the usual Patreon route and and that kind of thing by uh, selling literally the shirts off our backs in some cases. <laughs> to, to, uh, I don't know. It
0: depends <laughs> if we have any weight loss or uh, embarrassing weight gain. Then we may well, yeah, ditch all of our band shirts from 2005 onwards. I haven't. I'm I'm glad I haven't yet outgrown any of my clothing, and I've got a single Jesse James shoes converse imitation t-shirt which is far too big for me i was never even that big i think they just only had a large or an extra large left so this is the kind of thing that would fit that bloke or any of them from bowling for soup but particularly that one guitarist oh yeah uh it yeah it it, to say it hangs off me i could probably use it to paraglide but (laughs) i'm gonna i am still gonna hang on to that Um, But, yeah, you know, just talking about paying attention to where your money goes, it's the same with music as well. If you're getting something cheap with various accounts on various platforms, if it's not costing you much, then it's costing somebody something. And it's something to bear in mind, whether it's going to the cinema or whether it's buying music. It's it's always costing somebody something. That's why it's nice Mm. if you're able. If you've got a community cinema, yeah, it might not be the most comfortable seating. And if it's like the Palace in Felixstowe, as my mum noted, every time we went the same stain from year to year, the same stain on the screen. But there's charm to be found there and that is what is community. That's community there, keeping a community together. And I'm so mm. proud that whenever I've been back to Felixstone I, I don't think I've been back there this year, but whenever I'm back, that Palace Cinema is still going and they bring food to you, don't they? I've been they told. Do. <laughs> they do. Yeah.
1: They do. It's very distracting uh, because... Five minutes into the movie, it will have started, but they're still bringing around burger and chips for people and <laughs> yeah. trying to find them in the darkness. Uh, and I did try to go and see, I think, Best Exotic Marigold Hotel 2 with my now-in-laws one yeah. Sunday afternoon. And uh, I got a cup of tea, queued for a while for my cup of tea. I think that maybe they brought it in. So there was a big distraction with them bringing the tea to my seat. And then as we all sat with bated breath waiting for the film to start, it turned out there was some sort of error with the projector and we all had to just politely leave the cinema because they couldn't figure out what to do. Oh. Uh, and that, that was that. And we had to go back the next day to watch it. And we did. <laughs> we went back the very next day uh, with our tickets. Um, and you get a little raffle ticket there as well. There's, the ticket isn't like the name of the movie isn't printed on it. You just get a raffle ticket, and they have to just physically keep count of how many people have gone in, so they know <laughs> they've sold out or not. Yeah. Uh, but I do like the Felix Day Cinema, and um, it's very easy to make fun of it. But it's it's not all that bad, and um, they have even had given it a bit of a, of a lick of paint over the past couple of years it, it is yeah. um it's a bit a bit more up to date than it was well up to date maybe a strong term but I, you're <laughs> right about commu- community um you know it's one of the reasons why we got married in a pub and and when the landlady said well a lot of the locals will just want to sit here and eat drink anyway and i said yeah 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 that's we want that that's fine yeah. like, everyone should be here uh, i think yeah these things do hang a community together and keep it going and it's um it's wonderful that it's there um, so yeah, support, support your local cinema for sure. That's a lovely story
0: of good old British inefficiency met with decorum, which I like. <laughs> but the thing is, you know, if this Brexit bullshit is really going to go ahead and we're really going to drive off this cliff as we're desperate in the car together, turning around in the eight seconds we have before we hit the ocean and begin to drown, we are going to need a return to community, but it's, it ain't going to happen, is it really? It ain't going to happen. <laughs> I'll give you a quick rundown of the laser discs. Some of the laser discs that I bought.
1: I want to hear about this because, yeah, um, yeah I, I really do like a laser disc, and I've been on some uh, trips with yourself. One of the, the the best presents i ever got Lex when we were going out years ago was I got her a mint condition, still sealed uh, edition of Clueless, her favourite film, on laser disc, and in the same way, vinyl looks. Look, the, at the end of the day getting a blu-ray is is near very very close to the fidelity that you would have of the original celluloid you know the resolution is that much and and 4k is there like you could you can you could put you could literally put a blu-ray in on a cinema screen and project it and you would get a sense of 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 that film It, it would be near as damn it the fidelity of the uh, of the original. And let's face it, you don't have that same level of fidelity with, with a Laserdisc, but in terms of the pr- overall presentation and, um, and just the, the size of the artwork and, and having gatefold sleeves with stills from the film throughout, they're mm. gorgeous things to have on your shelf, aren't they?
0: Tesco's begun a line of vinyl Laserdisc-style packaging for... Mm. DVDs and Blu-ray or Blu-ray I, I I'm not I haven't quite understood exactly what they're doing but it's a laser disc style it's a laser disc size sleeve for mm. a Blu-ray uh, and then the the other queer thing we saw was HMV's new retro line of VHS packaging for Blu-ray discs. Mm. Uh, I, I don't know what to make of that. James Taylor of Local Trouble said well, he was derisive of it, wasn't he? He was uh, far more merciless than you or I, um, mm. I don't. It, it doesn't chime with me at all. Like again, like well, one sensational shot is generally looking for authenticity and honesty in its art, and that is inauthentic to an extreme. Um, like, what's wrong with finding the VHS and owning the Blu-ray? You know, because, mm. because both are available, both are available in plentiful supply. You can, if you want a sell through of the thing, for instance, you can literally get it for a quid. Yeah. You're not going to find it in a charity shop. If you go online to the Facebook groups, I'm a part of like the video club. Yeah. 50 pence, one pound, maybe two pound for the thing. And I think I got into the night for a pound or two pound trading places. So many of those Landis pictures, those early Johns pictures, uh, I got into a bit of a whirlpool with VHS tapes, uh, just as a whirlpool is that the word you settled on (laughs) yeah yeah um so I, (laughs) i fell into something of a sinkhole uh over christmas and into the new year and i bought maybe 20 30 vhs tapes which i didn't really need but i was buying them like rental so for instance the frankenheimer picture with roy scheider 52 pickup i've never seen it so i thought yeah for a quid why not and mm. the same applied to Remo Williams with Fred Ward, which is by the old Bond director, Guy Hamilton. Yeah, oh, yeah. For, a, for a couple of quid, why not? And I, and I may well sell them on. What I was reminded of, though, is that, yeah, VHS is fun and stuff, but actually it looks like shit.
1: And there's no... If you're getting, like, the pan and scan crap oh, and yeah. stuff, there, There's no, these days there's yeah. no point. Why have cotton when you can have silk, fledge? <laughs> yeah. Again...
0: Brexit Britain. Maybe we'll all be watching VHS tapes. Maybe we'll be doing the proper pirate <laughs> thing, and it will be doze out the back of a car like it was at the market in 1993. Listen, oh, I've like, got a problem with RoboCop. <laughs> you would know act. We can't see him out. Do you
1: remember the uh, the old um, the video piracy thing where they used to go? The, the, the ad used, ahead of the VHS is where the bloke went to the um, the the marketplace. Yeah,
0: darling, four weddings. Yeah, are Rocky Four. Five, three, six. Excuse me, I bought this video from you last Saturday. So? Well, I can't understand a word. Train's spotting, not surprised. All talking in Scotch, ain't they? I no, know. I mean, it's the, I su- it's the sound. Yeah? It's hopeless, absolutely yeah. hopeless. Yeah, 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 no trains in it either. I suppose that's my fault as
1: well. Here darling, four ninety nine. Well, the picture's rubbish as well. Well, that's your tracking, mate. But it's all right on my other videos. Tracking's touching.
0: Be careful. Most pirate videos are unwatchable. And there's no comeback. Got a receipt, eh? Got a receipt? Look, you said last week. Said's no good, mate. Oral contract. Not worth the paper it's printed on. Here, darling, four weddings. Train spotting. Has advertised on crime stoppers! Pirate videos, daylight robbery.
1: Uh, I always remember the fast show, uh, the fast show, the fast show sketch where a bloke went up and he said, "I'm really sorry, mate. I bought this off you last week." Uh, and then he opens it up and he says, "It's a lump of cheese." And he opens up the VHS case and it's just a lump of cheese. And the, gu- the guy says, "Now nah, that'll be your tracking, mate." VHS,
0: uh, it's sketchy. It can be sketchy, but. LaserDisc's quality is fine, and the audio quality is very good. I started collecting 15 years ago when I was living in San Francisco, and Amoeba was on my doorstep, and I found an Aliens box set, Natural Born Killers, Alien box set, The Abyss, mm. m- mostly some super dope James Cameron stuff, and it was the special editions. Then in Amoeba Los Angeles, I picked up Platoon, and that actually cost me... Some of these were going for like $5, $10, $15 in our pre-referendum exchange rate where when i was living out there it was 1.7 maybe even as high as 1.78 or 1.8 dollars to the pound so i was in clover Uh, but even then um in la the platoon box set which is a beautiful thing and i'll take some pictures for the website and for instagram another time and we'll we'll spin it properly i think that was 50 or 60 dollars because it's very rare i don't have any guidelines around what i collect i just quite i try to be selective frugal And I'm sticking mainly with the movie brats at the moment, and with Oliver Stone, and with some real 90s classics. So, for example, Mrs Parker and the Vicious Circle by Alan Rudolph. Check out this 90s cast. Now, Jenny Lee, leading as Dorothy Parker. She's magnificent. It's a murderer's row. Campbell Scott, Broderick, Peter Gallagher, Jennifer Beals, Andrew McCarthy, Wallace Shawn, Martha Plimpton, Lily Taylor, James LeGros, Gwyneth, Heather Graham... Stephen Baldwin, all in this one picture. John Favreau was in it and was cut out. That's how big it was. Wow. He couldn't, yeah. There was no room for Favreau in that one. Uh, we'll be watching <laughs> that in the forthcoming weeks. Mountains of the Moon by Bob Raffleson is a picture that I read about a long time ago in Total Film, maybe 2000 or 2001. At the time, it had never been released on DVD in the UK. I think it still hasn't been released on DVD or Blu-ray in the UK. And it's... Um, Patrick Bergen, who was in the other Robin Hood picture, if you recall the one with Uma Thurman that went up
1: against Prince of Thieves.
0: Do you <laughs> even remember that one?
1: <laughs> no, I was a young yeah. kid, and, the, and Kenner were hard at work marketing yeah. the Prince of Thieves. So no, I didn't sign up to the other one.
0: I think it's by John Irvin. They came out at almost exactly the same time. Um, so Patrick Bergen is in Mountains of the Moon with Ian Glenn, who to modern audiences uh, is Khaleesi. Is this really yeah. the best course of action? You know, it's that kind yeah. of a very stoic fellow who um, yeah. briefly became... Briefly going to be a stone man, wasn't he? But then, mate, he burnt it off him somehow. Yeah, Do you that, that, that
1: really made me uh, feel funny when I was <laughs> watching all that stuff. But yeah, yeah. Uh, spoiler uh, so alert for any Game of Thrones aficionados. Ah,
0: oh, come on, it's, it's been books for ages. Oh, to tell you what we... To interject myself, tell you what we did watch for the second time. Logan Lucky. What a bloody delight. Blimey. Yeah, because it's got um, that scene in the prison where they're saying, uh, uh, what is it, like, a, we demand a copy of the Windsor winner for the prison library. And the, Dwight Yoakam <laughs> comes out and says, I'm reading directly from the Wikipedia page. I guess he fell behind in his, I don't know, but the schedule's wrong. And they, we knew a couple of boys came in here. They'd seen the lady with the dragons and shit. <laughs> well, I understand that the series are no longer working from the books. They got ahead. <laughs>
1: That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I love that scene. That's all really <laughs> great. We've been on a Steven Soderbergh trip <laughs> recently. Uh, I, uh, I have? yeah. We watched Solaris. Um, oh oh which,
0: wow, I haven't seen that one yet. Wow. Well, it's, I heard it's, it's dense,
1: dense. It, it is a bit dense, and it is. It does feel like the Russian. very much like Russian literature. You know, it feels like the, like the source material, and it and it is yeah. dense, and it is. Um, uh, quite ethereal, but we watched that, and then uh, I, th- I thought we'd, um, I thought we'd go back to the beginning as well, and we tried to pick up out of sight with George Clooney and uh, um, uh, J Lo. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, we'd uh, we'd had a heavy day of walking around Norwich City Centre doing the hair trail. Uh, Where I walked about uh, the equivalent of five six miles uh, in a very short space Uh, sorry ten miles in a very short space of time so uh, I was uh, exhausted uh, and I fell asleep so we're going to go back to out of sight fell asleep uh, during out of sight unfortunately yeah I had I started my bottle of wine and then that was it lights out yeah but yes we were we were on a Steven Soderbergh trip because did he have anything to do with because he obviously did the original three uh, oceans uh, did he have anything to do with *Oceans 8? Lex wants to go see that. We need to check that out soon. But, but uh, any ex- exec producer <clears throat> credit? Anything? I haven't. I haven't bothered to pay attention.
0: I should imagine he's got a producer credit somewhere. He was so integral to the original trilogy. Hmm. Anyway, no, I, I haven't invested myself in that. You know, I, sh- I don't think you could add any more. But nevertheless, I want twelve more, fifteen more minutes with those characters, learning a little bit more about them. Um, it, it, what it's that, what it says to me is not that all fat was trimmed from that picture but that it was streamlined to begin with and Soderbergh very carefully provides only what we need of each character. So for instance most films would have another scene with the Seth MacFarlane character mm. but I suppose you only really need him for the three scenes he has. Yeah. And I quite like him in it. I mean his accent's off a little bit and the barnet's ridiculous but the moustache is like Nigel Mansell and yeah it, it generally speaking it works and then I don't. I don't want a sequel for the sake of a sequel. But man, if they were able to make another one, uh I, I'd love to see that. I'd love to see more of those characters. Cauliflower. <laughs>
1: it was I, great. I, I, um, <laughs> I can't see it. I can't see it happening with the. With the box office, uh, I, it made money. It made money, and I think it yeah. made its money back. But it didn't. Uh, it didn't do do what it was supposed to necessarily do. But yeah, it, it was worth it for the accents. And um, oh, yeah. Daniel Craig is genuinely great in it as uh, as a post Bond. Yeah. Well, it's not really post Bond, is it? But you know what I mean. It's a non James Bond role. And uh, yeah. I I wish Daniel Craig. Despite his attitude, I uh, I wish him all the very best after this uh, Danny Boyle Bond in the next couple of years because uh, I think he deserves to have a few few decent uh, few decent roles. Feels like he's been it's been a
0: while, hasn't it? Twelve years as Bond.
1: Yeah, he's I think he's now uh, as uh, has served as long as Roger Moore, but has not produced as many films.
0: Was Die Another Day two thousand two? Yes, yes, it was. Right, that's so the last it... Brosnan, and it's then two thousand six only... was
1: Casino Royale.
0: Yeah. So it's only a four-year gap, which is not considerable at all. But mm-hmm. because Die Another Day was so poor, it does feel like we've had Daniel Craig for a fu- this entire century for a full eighteen years.
1: Yeah, it, it is a long time, and it's funny to think. I just remember being my first year of uni and, and that kind of thing. I just feel, it feels like eons ago. You know what I mean? Um... That's that. There, there's a capable action set
0: of hands. Martin Campbell, not terrific, you know. Um, vertical Limit is no great shakes. But he did well with Golden Eye, He did well with Zorro, mm-hmm. and did very nicely with Casino Royale. That's the mm-hmm. you know, I like that that caliber of action director,
1: kind of a holdover from the nineties. I've got some love for those fellows. It's also funny because I remember the the Sun newspaper followed its production very closely. Before yeah, I went to weird, university, before I went to university, I was uh, still living in Framlingham, uh, and the I, I would work at the co-op. And the only paper they had knocking about in the mess room was uh, was The Sun. So I yeah. I would sit there and read that uh, before my shift or when I was on a break. And they followed the production of Casino Royale very closely. And they made fun of the blonde Bond uh, mercilessly. They really made fun of him. They'd do little mock-ups of him just looking like a prat and uh, all this kind of thing. And just yeah. talking about how he, he was struggling to do his own stunts. And like any little tidbit of information from set that maybe made him look a little silly... Uh, I remember, for example, when they even announced he was going to be Bond, there was a big press junket on the banks of the Thames or whatever. And he came in on a speedboat with someone driving it. And, of course, he had to have a life jacket on and sort of be strapped in. And they even made made fun of the fact that James Bond had to have a life jacket and be strapped in. So, yeah, they made fun of him a lot. And then the film came out and shut everyone up, which was supremely satisfying and that could have been any kind of film to me it didn't matter that it was Bond or not but for me the fact that the tabloids were trying to get that for no good reason uh like with baseless accusations were trying to get their claws into someone and then and then unanimously was shut up uh in an instant on the release of the film I thought was incredibly satisfying that could have been anything didn't have to be Bond I applauded applauded the moment they are such snides
0: is the thing that I don't understand such relentless snides so inordinately cynical about something of little consequence and at that point daniel craig was an acclaimed actor what why a pick on him i can't mm. I, I can't begin to imagine well cuz he didn't they look like they a
1: traditional th- bond that was the reason it's cuz he was the blonde bond
0: what, what an odd what, it's just a staggering odd thing to do that again speaks of a a, a, megal- a megalomaniac at the top of the thing saying i don't like the look of this fella <laughs> <laughs> torpedo it. You know what why of all th- why? I oh, just I'm not a big Bond fan. I've seen uh 10 of them I suppose. Live and let die is my favorite. The black exploitation one, yeah. Uh uh-huh. um, yeah. You got a hunky on your tail. <laughs> <laughs> I watched Casino Royale at least a year probably 18 months after everybody else did, but it energized me with the gun barrel shot cuz you, you the opening scene is in black and white, I mm. think. Uh, oh sorry the opening scene is in black and white Uh, he's sent on what is presumed to be the mission on which he becomes a double-O agent that's it but then I think it flashes back to the bathroom scrap where he gets his double-O status something like that Mm -hmm. but the sudden unexpected da-da-bum because the scene didn't seem like and because it's because you wondered whether the series was going to break from convention, but then it has Daniel Craig spinning, and it did the gun barrel, and I thought, oh, you, that was really cool, actually. All right. I want want to see the rest of this film. Dalton was my favourite, and I thought the Brosnan ones, he's a decent Bond, but they're not very good. Like, GoldenEye's dope, but I think it was aided very much by the... Not SNES. N64. Yeah. By the N64 game. I mean, that was what immersed everybody into Bond for years after the release of the film. So I suppose the picture was 95, uh, video released 96-ish, but then the game came out, I suppose, 97. Mm. And that kept it going, because, again, Tomorrow Never Dies is not great, and World Is Not Enough is not great, but we were playing... Goldeneye for a full three or four years. Yeah, exactly. It was immense yeah. at, at the time. James Bond, man, I do love it when we just spiral into other things. I'll wrap up the laser disc <laughs> very quickly. So Mountains I was of the say, Moon. What was your haul? <laughs> yeah. Mountains of the Moon, I'm excited about uh because it's raffleson and it's um Ian Glenn and Patrick Bergen looking for the source of the Nile. So what does that sound exactly like, man? Lost City of Z. It's gonna be that kind of vibe, I think, except transplanted to Africa. Rather than the Amazon, oh, mm-hmm. that's another film I need to see. We almost watched it at the weekend, but it's a little bit long for a um, little bit long for a Saturday night. Lost City of Zed. Yeah, and then I picked up The Rainmaker by Coppola, the last picture before his hiatus. He came back with Youth without Youth ten years later, starring Tim Roth. But um, mm. that was just the end of the cycle where he went out. Not with a bang, not even with a whimper, just a so-so Grisham adaptation. Again, starry cast. Mm. Damon, Danes, John Voight, Mary Kay Place, Mickey Rourke, Danny DeVito. I believe Roy Scheider has a cameo. So he's reaching back to the early 80s and the 70s for some of those... Like The the older I get, the more I appreciate Roy Scheider. Because when I was yeah. a kid, it was just Jaws, and he's also in The French Connection, and then the more you see in a picture like Sorcerer, yeah. and, yeah, it's becoming one of my favourite... So I'd urge, um, when men I'd urge were people, men.
1: I'd urge people as well to uh, keep their eyes very, very close to the TV guides because Sorcerer is on every three to six months, maybe on ITV2, very late at night, one of those obscure ITV channels. So set your um, your Sky Plus or your TV or whatever it is because it's one hell of a film. And, you watched uh, it,
0: didn't you? You watched it.
1: Yeah, I have done, and e- yeah. even Lex. Adored it, and that's not generally like that kind of seventies new cinema. Isn't generally her 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 cup of tea, and that's a little unfair because she likes Easy Rider and things like that. But 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 yeah, she really dug it. And um, if you haven't seen it, I will just say one thing, and that is Rope Bridge, <laughs> and then, and then I'll leave it at that. But yeah, keep your eyes uh, close to the uh, the skies for ITV Two Late Night. Check out Sorcerer as soon as you can.
0: I saw it for the first time beginning of this year at the Regent Street Cinema. Since then, it's been on Film 4 a couple of times, and as you say, it's on ITV2 as well. And I'd love to do an episode about it. I'd love to do an episode about it and about Billy Friedkin, but I don't want anybody to go into Sorcerer knowing anything about it. I wouldn't want people that listen having Sorcerer preempted in any way. And that's why I'll edit this bit out, and I'll edit carefully. But Luke, that bit... Well, it's on the poster... (laughs) no but no 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 no. sorry luke i don't mean your bit i mean what i'm about to say but the shot so when the i just yeah i i lost my shit and i'll I'll edit that bit out because i don't want people to know about it but a
1: couple of a couple of caveats a couple of caveats about sorcerer uh number one i think you're right i think it's film four not itv2 so i do apologize but the second thing is that Sad. Very, very sadly, it came out. I think a fortnight or so before Star Wars. Yeah, and that's as a re- right. A, as a result of that, yeah. uh, it's not really had the the mainstream legacy that it, that it should have done, uh, like a lot of films of that era, like an Easy Rider or whatever. I don't know. But um, but yeah, it should really be up in that pantheon of of new cinema, seventy cinema. And unfortunately, it's it's not it's not a Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, is it? Because because Star Wars came out and. Uh, yeah. No one can remember it, but uh, but yeah, I think it's picking up a cult following. It's interesting that you said you saw a showing um, in London. So uh, obviously that people are playing it. You know, it's picking up. Yeah,
0: yeah, and I found this with Billy Friedkin pictures. I was I listened to uh, I think it was the Brett Easton Ellis podcast, which had Bogdanovich on it. Uh, yeah, most of his films are pretty ropey, actually. There's a really good example of um, when non-cinema heads point to women in cinema. I always think of Bogdanovich and I think, listen, I know his name was above the title and it said directed by Peter Bogdanovich, but every single decent thing he ever did was with Polly Platt. And anybody mm. who knew, anybody in the know knew that Polly Platt was pulling the strings on all of that shit on Last Picture Show on, and on What's Up Doc. Mm. But Bogdanovich was on Bret Easton Ellis and he was talking about, in a, a, a relaxed way, he, he made the point like he just said, uh, yeah, no, I... I I made that film and critics didn't seem to like it, but I, I didn't really, I couldn't really see what was wrong with it. And I thought, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't have any particular strong feeling on that. But I can imagine Friedkin saying the same thing, saying, you know, at the time and subsequently saying like, yeah, sorcerer is very difficult to make and it was a bit of a folly, but I looked at the finished thing and I, I didn't really have a problem with it. And the same with To Live and Die in LA. And mm. you just go through his pictures and then... 20, 30 years removed, you realise actually he was right. The verisimilitude that he was attaining with a picture like Sorcerer and mm. The Exorcist and The French Connection, if he says, I didn't really have a problem with it, you think, yeah, you were right not to have a problem with it. It's just the contemporary audiences and critics, for some reason, sometimes it's arbitrary. But as you mm. say, with Sorcerer, number one, it, it, it couldn't get a market because of Star Wars and it was called Sorcerer, which is not has no marketable connection to what it is, which is a film no. about desperate men transporting gelignite so it's yeah. kind of a silly name if you want to make money off the film but time and again he's been proven right now it's not every single time i think that there's a couple of pictures in the 90s um he's got uh, a preoccupation with david caruso which does not serve him or his films well but when he came back with the last big picture he did at the cinema was killer joe with mcconaughey my dad and i saw that a uh, deranged beautiful stuff really goes really goes for it really goes for it And that was why I was so excited when I heard that he might be doing an episode or two of True Detective 2. But it was not to be, and I can't remember what directors we got. And Luke and I were puzzled and appalled and eventually, like... (laughs) In equal measure. Yeah, entertained for... There's a few good... There's some really good stuff in that second season. I mean, who talks about it now? The the drop-off is astonishing. Like I remember me and Rafe talking about the first season. And while watching it, I really did think, this is a new religion. Yeah, The first season of True Detective, a little bit like Mad Men at its best, was the kind of thing that if you start reading about it late at night, say you're on your own and it's 11 or it's midnight and you read read about it for 45 minutes, you get a shiver down your spine because you're yeah. almost uncovering uh, information that you you simply shouldn't have, that humans shouldn't know about. And, uh, the <laughs> X-Files was the same, where well, you're watching and you think, I shouldn't know this stuff. People shouldn't know this stuff. They're, they're coming in through the windows any moment to stop me knowing about this stuff. That's how good True Detective felt. And then the second one, I mean, I even the raid on the the raid on the cat house just made me think of One Eye Jacks and David Lynch and Twin Peaks. Oh well. Are you going to give it another go? Do you reckon? Can you be bothered? True
1: Detective two. Yeah. Maybe if I rewatched season one and then went straight into the second, possibly. Uh, yeah. That would that that's an interesting thought, but now I was very let let down by by that one. I'm sorry that that didn't do it for me. Yeah,
0: you've got to know when to call it, haven't you? And and HBO have, and the, the problem was that they uh the pressure they exerted on the writer creator was too great. Any it's a little bit like that third album situation. Um, bands spend their entire life generating the material for the first album. And then the second album they can generally either use offcuts from the first, or they can just do more of the same, and that's acceptable. But by the third album you've got to write new stuff once again, and that's why you get something like Be Here Now, where it's essentially like, we're fucking rich, that kind of album. (laughs) Or most uh, bands which leapt from indies to majors, like Huskadoo and The Replacements, they had that kind of situation where they sped through three, four indie albums, and then they get the money, and you realise, well, I I don't know what to write about anymore. My paradigms have changed. I I no longer have that connection to whatever the artistic impulse was. Yeah, Um, sure. And, yeah, too much pressure was placed on the true detective bloke. can't even remember his name. Something like Nick Polazzo. And uh, the turnaround was too brief. And what he came up with was, yeah, unsurprisingly, half-formed and ill-thought-out. Very well cast, generally. Like, the Vince Vaughn stuff could have worked. Mm. Um, but hopefully, if they give him... A, it's been, what, a year and a half, two years since the last one. If they give yeah. him another year or so, I hope it can come back. and. The, one of the most exciting things about it was, you know, seeing proper Hollywood quality actors in, on, in, in that kind of police procedural at that level. Mm, yeah, uh, I uh, yeah, I agree. Yeah, and I'd lo- I'd like to see that again. Right, but time is wearing on, and I, th- I feel like we've got much more to get through. So look out for the laser discs. We'll be doing a lot more on laser discs and a lot more on VHS on the Evening Glass and occasionally on the Electronic Labyrinth over the next six months. I don't yet know what to call the piece. Luke, uh, you're welcome to contribute and I'll open it to the listeners as well if we should give cute, sardonic, punning names to our features on tapes and on discs. I don't know.
1: Yeah, maybe. Uh, Maybe it should be more catchy than the title I've been giving my series, Luke's A to Z. (laughs) But of course, uh, to refresh your memory over the past few months... Uh, Since the inception of the show, actually, uh, to be honest with you, we've covered uh, the likes of Martin Scorsese's uh, 1980s film noir classic After Hours. We've gone back to the Zucker Brothers with Airplane, in my opinion, still one of the funniest films of all time. We did all four of the original Alien films. Uh, We did Amelie, of course, which was a very convenient segue out of Alien Resurrection, uh, being the same director. Uh, We went back to, again, uh, a bit of a a, a very easy segue, but this was uh, some classic Coppola uh, and uh, Zootrope with uh, Apocalypse Now, of course, and then George Lucas's uh, American Graffiti, his uh, second feature film. Uh, Anchorman, Animal House, Annie Hall and Bananas and then uh, Arthur as well, and as good as it gets. Uh, a couple of films that I'm not entirely sure why I own on DVD, uh, but, but they're there. Uh, so coming up, we've got some, some ones that we'll go through in the coming episodes. We've got Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, or Tomatoes, I suppose I should say, as well as the Back to the Future trilogy. One of my favourite 60s films, Barbarella, uh, which started my long, uh, adoring crush on Jane Fonda. Uh, and of course, uh, the Zucker Brothers come back with Basketball, this time starring Trey Parker and Matt Stone. To this day, one of my favourite comedies of all time, and one that me and my friend John Rydell will uh, will endlessly quote. Uh, so, yeah, a good one. And then we've got uh, a load of the original Tim Burton uh, Batman films, and uh, that, all that the 90s Batman films, uh, as well as, in my opinion, the best Batman of them all. Uh, Mask of the Phantasm, which is an animated film uh, which not many people have seen from 93. So yeah, at the moment that's just called Luke's A to Z, but there's loads to get through uh, in the coming episodes. Um, So I look forward to that, as well of course as uh, as Fletch's discs and tapes as he sees them. So uh, Fletch, it sounds like you uh, went off into the uh, depths of uh, nowhere to, to, to retrieve something. Where on earth have you been? I managed to locate another beer. Oh, brilliant. Well done. In the icebox. Which of those am I looking
0: forward to the most? We will unpack... I think we'll unpack Back to the Future on the Electronic Labyrinth. It's one of my favourite franchises. I think possibly the best franchise that Hollywood has ever produced. You could probably... You can make an argument for Mad Max, but then again, it's Australian-backed. But Mm. I don't think anything beats Back to the Future. Uh, I think that... Zemeckis, Gale, and to an extent Spielberg have been very protective over it. It did get the Saturday morning cartoon show, mm. which I think Christopher Lloyd. Yeah, Christopher Lloyd did some um,
1: Top and tails for. He
0: did. Yeah, I um, think he
1: might have done the moral at the end of the episode or something like that.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. They. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what it was. I remember him because he using the uh, mobile uh, television studio, the movie camera. What's it called? The uh, What are those things called? The camcorder. Blimey. Camcorder. Yeah. How quickly they forget. Using the camcorder from the film itself, he, yeah. Yeah, he he did something there. So I think we'll do that on I was just thinking about Back to the Future this weekend because um I visited I had a busy weekend. I visited a Cold War era bunker. Uh one where that was used for radar mapping. Oh yeah. Essentially. Uh kind of as as part of the early warning system of the fifties Oh where and was that? It, I think I've been well, there classified man i can't even tell you (laughs) i think i've been uh, there on a school trip it made me think about how my my dad and my uncles never talk about it when they talk about the 70s when they talk about growing up in london in the 60s and the 70s they talk about how free it was because london was neglected to a certain extent so there was liberty in that but they Mm. never talk about the threat of nuclear war Global thermonuclear destruction, they they never mention it. They don't talk about The Day After or Threads or Miracle Mile or even in relation to um, Two Tribes by Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Yeah. And it made me wonder whether in 20 years' time we won't mention ISIS, we won't mention the terror threats that we feel subject to at the moment. Because that's a pretty big... Thinking back to it, like, we would would say to our parents, wow, so what was it like, you know, um, in the 80s, Reagan... Gorbachev followed by Yeltsin but Reagan and Gorbachev and Brezhnev before him and the the permanent uh, permanent overarching threat of complete destruction of the planet every minute that you were alive every day every week that you're alive and like and then you think but the the films we watch the music we listen to doesn't really convey that threat at all other than it was potentially joyful because when i think of the 80s i think of Thatcher and thatcherism and boys from the black stuff economic depression joblessness with uh but i don't think of the nuclear threat at all what do you reckon
1: sorry fletch i went down a rabbit hole <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean i was i was uh i i was uh reading something else i went down an internet rabbit hole i do apologize <laughs> uh what were you reading about <laughs> <laughs> I went from uh, the Zucker Brothers uh, through to the Scary Movie series and I was trying to work out when they got involved in the series and, uh, and yeah, when they and dropped that out. Will
0: be, that will be when it,
1: in, a, in two
0: decades' time when our children are saying, what was it like in the alts with the al-Qaeda and the Osama bin Laden and ISIS? And we'll say, well, you know, yeah, that sucked, but the day-to-day, the thing we're worried about the most... Was those two fuckers, Freeberg and Seltzer, making more of those movie movies? Yeah, that's it. That was the real worry.
1: That's my real concern with this life. No, Uh, no, not at all. I think I tuned out... um, You mentioned threads, and uh, that's when when I tuned out.
0: (laughs) I was thinking about how I think that Trey Parker and Matt Stone have turned to gold everything they've touched across more formats than most other creatives. You know, they've used puppets, animation straight-up live-action, brawls, mm-hmm. Zucker Brothers comedy. My beer's overflown a little bit, so I'm going to have to be careful with it. Um, and ca- they've used musicals as often as possible, right? Um, and I don't think they get the acclaim they deserve. And I don't even like South Park that much, but I think they're like incredibly capable fellows. And the and Book of Mormon as well, like, they've done a Broadway show. I'd like to see those two in live-action more often, because I think they're great in basketball.
1: I think that they're in a position where they can really do what they want, uh, and I think that that is fine with them. I think I remember around the time of uh, the release of Book of Mormon, they said that they had started their own uh, studio, I believe. Was it a studio? I think they've long had a production company, haven't they? Maybe it was a, maybe it's an independent studio to actually release and get some distribution. And I always remember as part of the... It, it's sort of irrelevant, because I just remember that part of the press junket or whatever... They said, uh, we've worked with a lot of people over the years, but I think, and I'm paraphrasing, but they said, we've worked with a lot of people over the years, but we found that the people we most prefer to work with is ourselves, <laughs> which I... And I really admired them for that, and I thought, yeah, fair enough, uh, power to you. So, um, you're right, I think they don't get the acclaim they deserve, but I think part of that is probably when you refuse to play ball with the system, like most people do, mm. and if you if you truly... If you, if you have the capacity to release stuff on your own and do it on your own terms then um i don't know go ahead uh, it might not always get the the same recognition or whatever because you're not you're, you're outside of the mainstream a little bit but at the end of the day book of mormon was freaking huge it was absolutely massive uh, and i guess they can kind of do what they want because they're still knocking out new south park's very regularly, the production yeah, yeah. is relatively cheap to make so they can turn them around very very quickly so I guess that kind of just helps to fund it, you know, if they're knocking out South Park's left right and centre that can keep the whole the whole machine ticking over and they can turn to some other creative endeavours if they wish to such as writing a Broadway musical
0: I've wondered about that in relation to them and others as well, I've wondered about it would be in the interests of Hollywood to find a way to get rid of Parker and Stone I know that they're a cash cow for Comedy Central, but um, they their politics and their worldviews don't align with conventional Hollywood. Um, I've read interviews with I don't part- one of the reasons I don't like South Park is that I think its its moral, ethical, but let's say political standpoint is infantile. It essentially at the end of each episode says, "Let's all just leave each other alone." And I don't like that kind of libertarianism. Anybody who knows me would tell you that I like my ambition is to be a benign dictator. Uh, I don't think people should do exactly as they please. I don't think we should let people get as fat as they like or uh well they you know the individuals suffering from terrible mental health problems but they can get by day to day so just leave it unresolved. No, I don't I don't think so. I think you know if you if you have a a broken leg then it should get fixed. If you have past trauma then it should be resolved to the, you know, through therapy. And so, yes, I'm no libertarian, and that's one reason that I'm not down with South Park. But they're not actually (laughs) as... They're they're nowhere near as right-wing as people might consider them to be, but they made the the good point. I think I was watching it on Charlie Rose, of all people. They said that once they got to Hollywood, they realised that the punk thing, and they are, again, like we were talking about with Discord Records and Kurt Cobain, they are punks, old-style punks, and they want to get people's backs up. And the most punk thing to do in Hollywood is to question... Hollywood liberals and their relatively vapid, unthinking morals. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so that's one thing that South Park does very well. And in connection to that, it's and this isn't to disparage or downgrade what he's accused of doing, but it's convenient for Hollywood that Louis C.K. got found out in the way that he did, because that bloke was he was dictating on his own terms everything that he did writing, producing, directing, shooting his own show, putting on FX, mm. selling his own specials from his own website. The money he made, and I'm sure you're aware, Luke, yep. the listeners probably are too, but the money he made from one single stand-up special distributed through his own site mm-hmm. was astonishing. It bankrolled him forever. I think he, mm. the money we're talking about is like five or eight
1: million Something like that, that he made himself from that. It was the go-to case study, because at the time, working in digital marketing, and then I worked with our friend Tom Rafe on a video on-demand platform that, that he had as a startup. if you remember. Uh, don't look for it now. It's no longer there. But for a <laughs> while, I was the marketing manager of uh, of a video on-demand platform uh, that, that our friend had developed. And uh, we were part of that, that scene. Netflix was already very mainstream, but we were looking at new ways to, um, new platforms to, to try and get video on demand, you know, straight in front of the user, you know, cut out the middleman, blah, blah, blah. Uh, the, the Louis C.K. case study was always the go-to example when it, when you went to all of these conferences and the stuff at Cannes and all this kind of thing, that all of the execs, the big bod execs, were looking at, well, how's he done it? You know, this is what we need yeah. to do. This is the new distribution model. And oh, no, the other thing I'm pleased that you mentioned is... That that they're punks and uh, and that they're exposing uh, kind of the system. The film that I went to go and see most recently at the cinema, McQueen, uh, the Alexander McQueen uh, documentary. And uh, is this is this a good enough? I mean, you know, it couldn't be a better segue if George Oscar Bluth was riding on it, saying, "I've made a huge mistake." <laughs> uh, and that's another story for another time. Have you been watching the new uh, Arrested Development? Maybe maybe we'll. Uh, is Everyone that the remix? Up. Is it the remix or is it brand new stuff? Uh, the remix I watched and also the brand new the brand new season. No, I
0: three seasons and out for me. As I said earlier, I lived in California and I was in California for a year at the time that Arrested Development first came out, so it was a very special, new, personal thing for me. And I loved the first two seasons. And even by the third season, I thought, it's not quite as good. There is a definite drop-off in quality and that's all I needed. And uh, the fourth one was a diverting mess kind of i wouldn't say interesting because it didn't hold my interest uh but it was a diverting mess so i might watch the remix i haven't seen the new stuff and i think uh it will be interesting if ron howard brings in himself to clean up this trouble like like <laughs> he did on solo <laughs> how does he do that one i don't know but the funny uh, thing is that the see that like the, the dope directors from the original arrested development like matola and the Russos and Jay Chandrasekhar, they are all mm. busy with their own um, big, big projects. Yeah. So how yeah, how true. has it been? You've been watching.
1: Oh yeah, uh, that's lo- long, long gone. That's well, well watched in my, in my book. The remix, I thought, was a marked improvement for season four, so that was positive. Uh, and the new the new series was—I gotta say—it was highly enjoyable. It was nowhere near the oh. highs of that second season, and 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 you cannot replicate those days and despite their very best efforts to get the vast majority of the cast back at the same time it's still abundantly clear when they're shooting around people and people are not in the same room together yeah. and and they even get they get gets get the point where they try to make gags of it and therefore that would that took took me out the moment quite a bit but uh, so
0: so it's self-reflexive about its own lack of cast members
1: <laughs> yeah a, yeah it is mm. yeah and then people, by that point who cares but, uh, yeah, it was, it was enjoyable enough. And um, Trey Parker and Matt Stone, punks in the Hollywood system. Uh, and that does remind me of a documentary I went to go and see at the cinema called McQueen, which is about the fashion designer Alexander McQueen. Uh, Fletcher, if you'll indulge me, I'll, I'll let you know what I thought of this. And uh, you can probably still check this out in London. It's still playing. I was looking at East Anglia. Of course, I'm living in Norwich and Norfolk, uh, grew up in, in Ipswich, in, in Suffolk, and uh, I I just wanted to see where any of my local friends could see it. It's it's in the Ulbra Cinema on the Suffolk coast at the moment, but it's no longer in any of the towns or cities nearby. But if you can get out to Olbro in the next few days, then by all means, go and check it out. But like I say, if you're living in a major metropolitan area, it's probably still knocking about an independent cinema, and I'm sure if you're in London, you can certainly catch it. But um, this reminded me an awful lot, you know, of the Julian Temple uh, 2000 documentary on the Sex Pistols called The Filth and the Fury. So I'm really pleased you were talking about Trey Parker and Matt Stone as, as, as punks, <laughs> because this this really does have that feel. So the Sex Pistols film, The Filth and the Fury, by Julian Temple, kind of has this scrapbook feel to it. It has so much archival footage from the 70s. That it, it, They even cut up, like, old... I mean, the McQueen film doesn't do quite this, but they do cut up old um, old ads, uh, like Cadbury's ads and that kind of thing from the 70s, and it really gives it a sense of the time, and you really do feel, even though you weren't living in the 70s, I you know, I was born in 87, that you really do feel like you're, you're going on a time warp back to 76, 77. And the Alexander McQueen film does it in a similar way. Obviously, um, this was the birth of the camcorder, it was that era, and... He was filming a lot. His friends were filming a lot. A lot of the people in that scene with him were were filming. Um, So Lex, my wife, she's always admired Alexander McQueen. And I'm really gutted about this. She really wanted me to take her to the V&A in 2015 to go and see Savage Beauty, which was after um, he'd taken his own life. And the V&A were putting on a a, a show of a lot of his stuff. And I I foolishly didn't go. And the reason for that is because... I guess I don't know a whole lot about fashion and um, I have an appreciation for how it works, uh, how the industry works. But I don't know a lot about it as a kind of an art form or, or anything and beyond the Sex Pistols and beyond Vivian Westwood and what she was doing. I've never really been that into a fashion designer or anything like that, but uh, I was really, really moved by the McQueen documentary and like the Pistols film uh like I say it it was good just to go back and soak up some of that culture and it did take me back to a time when Britain was a really really creative space uh so it makes you think of Britpop and Damien Hirst and other buzzwords even though none of those things are specifically mentioned in the film whatsoever it just you can feel yourself soaking all of that up um and I, I don't know if I could have even... Before seeing this film, I don't think I could have picked out Alexander McQueen in, in an identity parade. I couldn't have told you what he looked like or anything. Um, and to be honest with you, I was barely aware that he'd taken his own life in 2010. Although it did dawn on me that the reason for that is because if anything happens in 2010, and I'm not aware of it, it is because... In two thousand ten I was drinking heavily and I, I was I was drunk for the whole essentially the whole twelve <laughs> the whole twelve months and that is no word of a lie. To this day I'll be I'll pick up the newspaper and I'll go, Well when did this concert happen? Oh yeah, two thousand ten. Yeah, that's why I'm not aware of it. And that was definitely my lost year. So unfortunately this news essentially passed me by. But what really struck me was that he's this this unassuming little skinhead from East London, from Stratford, like this little cherub. And he talks like an East Londoner and he talks like he's from a very humble background. But one of the things that absolutely blew me away, which, again, I I hadn't been aware of. I think I'd been a little bit aware of it, but, but not as much as I should have been, is that in that punk rock way, like you're talking about with Trey Parker and Matt Stone, he sort of takes whatever's around him uh, and I do mean literally because at one point he's wrapping bin bags around a model and getting them to walk out onto the catwalk and creating art with it. But what he does with his art is he, so- he soaks it all up and then he points out quite clearly how ugly and vulgar the world around him is. Some of the most interesting moments of the film are the first couple of shows he does. So 1992 is his first one which is called Jack the Ripper and His Victims and that is as it sounds. Uh, the-, the next one is called Highland Rape and there's is a lot of women he's he's dressed them up where they've got bruises makeup that they're made up to look bruised and the the clothing is torn and ripped and it and it looks like they've been abused and you've got these models walking out onto the catwalk who look like they've been possibly raped or abused you know it whilst out for a stroll in the highlands and um I really do admire anyone, Uh, it is vulgar, it is on the nose, it's rough, um, but it is that punk rock effect, and I admire anyone, that uh, any artist, who um, on some level, quite clearly, is going just to provoke and cause an offence, and just be uh, objectionable, but if you break it down... And you really start to analyse it, you realise that at the end of the day, it's just pointing out what's already there anyway, um, that that your people are essentially politely ignoring. Um, so I, I I that really floored me is just the fact that yeah, this was a punk rock era in the nineties, and uh, you had the rave culture and all of that, but there was this art scene happening, and uh, he was yeah, because this of that. is
0: around the time as as <coughs> young British artists, so Chapman Brothers. Tracy Emin, mm-hmm. whatever Hurst was up to. And I, for me, like Hurst is an outlier. I think he's the emperor's new clothes. I mean, he doesn't even make that shit, you know? Some of these people can't even draw hands. Oh, I, I, can, barely, I can barely be bothered to unpack my feelings on Damien Hurst. And I respect that artists find things around them and regurgitate them through, you know, goes in through their auditory and... Uh, oral receptors and comes out as an expression of themselves that's what it's meant to be I don't think Damien Hurst necessarily does that I think that he saw a shark in formaldehyde above a shop in somewhere in East London and I'll find out where it was and I'll mention it on another podcast or something I think he thought shit yeah I could probably do that and make eight million pounds you know <laughs> um but the other, the rest, like, I, I grew up in a... Ha- Bizarrely, I grew up in a household that read the Daily Mail, even with my father's politics and my mother's relatively liberal politics and my father's politics, he gets more and more liberal every couple of years. Soon he'll be asking for the legalisation of everything other than Brexit. My household was one in which we read the Daily Mail, and they were constantly, again, just like the, the current Bun, making fun of Tracy Eminen, oh, a, a, an unmade bed is not an art, and you think, well... Number one, why are you so ideologically opposed to this lady that you're given? You're still providing a um, a platform. Yeah, oxygen, even, even to decry it. Yeah. And secondly, if it, like if it makes you think it could be art, uh, and I mean, while Billy Childish, who is a a kind of a punk rock icon to you and I, dated Tracy Emin, was a part of her art scene for a while. He's had a go uh, over time, and, you know, they've both got decent points. But um, I'll go back to what my... I think my dad quotes Don Letts when he says this about punk. Punk's in your head, not on your head. Mm. And if it's making you think, then it's art, to an extent, you know? If mm. it's making you question things... And I like what you say about Alexander McQueen, because some of the... Sorry, Alexander Mc... I always conflate those two names. I like what you said about Alexander McQueen, be, forcing people to acknowledge... A truth they would rather remain covered is delicious to me. I love, I love holding a mirror up to society. I love to see mm. it in my, the art that I enjoy. I like, I even to an extent enjoy doing it to people, and that's why Kubrick and, in particular, Full Metal Jacket mm. is a really, yeah. is a really fun film because at every turn, it's presenting a, an unpalatable reality. I think, which speaks to Vietnam. As a whole, as they're looking for the sniper, Cowboy insists that Doc, J and 8-Ball are wasted and he says it's got to accept the reality of the situation. Got to leave them there. And then the animal mother says, fuck you, fuck all you assholes. And he runs over there shooting, blasting and they're all, you, you know, providing covering fire with their M16s and this ridiculous amount of bullets and ordnance fired at these empty buildings. And then he gets over the end to, to his objective and then he shouts back, Doc J and Eight Ball are wasted, and uh, I mean that's uh, for me that's mm. Vietnam in Synecdoche. You know th- this situation is unwinnable. Yeah, let's spend another five million dollars and see what happens. Yeah, yeah, let's spend another fifty million dollars. So uh, yeah, what I, I have a limited uh, knowledge of what McQueen got up to. Um, from what I knew of him, I admired him, and I'm really I am disappointed that I didn't get to see the documentary because it's it's so far it's been a lovely summer but there are some things that you should take time out to see, and this is definitely one of them. And I think it's we're just about 25 years removed from it now. Mm. Um, I suppose that with Brexit impending next year, there will be a national imperative to try to recall what was happening in the early 90s in Britain, but with suede, blur, elastica, pulp the young British artist, Jamie Hewlett doing it in comic books as well. I mean, when you and I were growing up, Jamie Hewlett was, I don't know, like 22, 23. Now he's the bloke that done Gorillaz, but Tank Girl at the time, and all of those covers for the senseless things, and those crusty punk bands at the air, beginning of the 90s. It was a, <laughs> it was a really interesting time to be young and British, and we're removed from it. Like, you're far too young, and I'm I, even I am too young to really know what it was like to be young Yeah, in 93, 94 when having just, as Thatcherism was, well, no, Thatcherism remains with us, but Thatcher was gone, Major had come in, and we were just about on the cusp of the Labour government, and as Luke and I have said before, there was about an 18-month period at the just approaching the millennium where, yes, for all its faults, but still it was the Clinton administration, and for all its faults, but still it was a Labour government after 19, 18 years of Tory rule, and just, there was... it. There was—I don't know—it was a sunnier time. It felt like a sunnier time, and we only we had such a a small glimpse of it. And as Luke and I have said before, yes, at the same time in the Balkans there is genocide, civil war, reverberation still being felt today. But recalling that um, time—is that the kind of feel that you get from the documentary? Oh, absolutely! A a wonderful scene in the '90s, in the early '90s.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I was moved. Buy it because you get this young baby-faced boy who never fits in. Uh, he's he's obviously Lee McQueen as his his real name, um, and his uh, he, he he was sort of adopted by Vogue writer industry insider uh, Isabella Blow, and uh, she convinced him to go with Alexander, which is his middle name because it sounded more posh uh, and gave it you know had more of a buzz, more of a sellable brand. But um, when you when you hear the friends and family who are all interviewed as talking heads call him Lee, little Lee, that really uh, you know brings it home that he he was from slightly more humble beginnings, very much an outsider. He goes from knocking on the doors in Savile Road to get an apprenticeship. Uh, And I think his mum sort of says something like, well, you know, might as well give it a go. They can only say no. You know, it's very you don't you you can't imagine getting into the industry these days, any industry by knocking on the door and asking for a job. And it's it's uh, it takes you back to to those those sort of days as well. Um, So, yeah, you go from those humble beginnings um, to, of course, you know, Gucci acquiring, you know, the majority of his uh, his house, his company, all of the high-end uh, couture that he started to produce. It does go into his personal demons, as any narrative for any um, biography, biopic these days, a documentary, you know, would, would tend to. But the one thing I'll say, you know, it, it does talk about, It does touch on abuse as a child and and very much this outsider element of never being accepted by the glitterati and, and, and the mainstream of fashion because he was there to provoke. But what I like most about the film, and I'll sort of end on this is that it clearly does skip elements of his biography. You know, it, it he introduced some former lovers uh, and boyfriends, but you, you're you not really... You, you don't get a sense of, oh, and then he got married. Because he, he was married, I think, toward the end of his life. Um, maybe not officially, but I believe he did have um, a marriage of some kind. And um, I, I do think it skips portions of his life. But that's okay. Because what it does is it puts the art up front and centre. Which I think a lot of documentaries, I mean, I'm a big Daniel Johnston fan, the outsider musician, and the documentary The Devil and Daniel Johnston that came out many years ago now, does not do that. You know, it talks about his mental health issues and all of the nutty, wacky stories that you have to hear directly from people to, to believe them. Um, and a lot of documentaries I think sometimes make the mistake of thinking that the mental health issue or the abuse issue or whatever is the most interesting part of the narrative but I don't always think that it is and in this case it's more that time like you allude to uh, and, and just his art and what he was doing and what he was trying to say and what his position was within the industry That that is the most interesting bit and to see him go from little Lee baby faced from Stratford streets to this guy that goes some length to change his appearance, uh, but then forgets maybe who he is uh, himself. That It really did move me, Fletch. So, yeah, like you say, it's been a wonderful summer, but it's definitely one worth taking the time out to see. I do think you'll still be able to see it in London at the time that we produce this uh, and release this podcast, but certainly um, when you can check it out on DVD, Blu-ray, or, or indeed when it's streaming, it's definitely the sort of thing that will turn up on Netflix uh, and you'll be able to watch with a bottle of wine one night.
0: It might be one of the best compliments that can be paid to someone to call them a provocateur. Mm. Uh, I know there's baggage with that, but it's just something that we're drawn to, I think. I can't deny it. Like, provocateur, and especially as well, every time I listen to the track Debaser, and he says, to grow up to be, to be a Debaser. Mm. And I think if, if like, you and I, we we can't do it. We're... (laughs) We can't be that kind of Klaus Kinski. Ultimately, we're not nutters. Like McQueen, we, we don't have, thankfully, in many ways, we don't have the darkness that might provoke such a commitment to one's expression. But to be a debaser, to be a provocateur, to have that punk attitude, it's one of the things my dad always says, like, some of these people, that they're doing it so that we can enjoy it by proxy. They do it for us so we don't have to, because we can't be gg allen nor would we want to be gg allen necessarily but uh we we can't be don Letts or joe strummer i mean when did how old was joe when he went like 50 yeah in his 50s yeah so there is great attraction for me in these characters that can commit themselves to that extent and like what you've what you've talked about in that documentary that tension I, i i understand it as well the um The tension of being a working class kid. I'm not saying so. I'm not speaking of myself here, but I appreciate what you say. The tension from a queen of being a working class kid and transcending that to level upon level upon level, but then needing to reconnect with it in order to not just to stay true to oneself, but to retain what makes you important and extant. Uh, every rapper has this problem as well. What well, most rappers, anyway? Mm. Like Jay Z hasn't been interesting in a long time, and it's probably because he's been a multi-millionaire for a long time. Blueprint was two thousand one. It came out September eleventh. Even that couldn't stop him. So Blueprint was seventeen years ago. He hasn't really done that much since then, which has been particularly good. And it's no wonder, because he he hasn't <laughs> mm. he's mixed with different people for that long, and it must be. Grueling for a character like McQueen and any number of others that we could name, to stay true to themselves and recall what makes them special, mm. while, on a weekly basis, m- inexorably moving away from that. You know, like I think about Ian Jury, but also specifically like Keith Allen. Like Keith Allen grew up working class and was a punk, and so was his brother. But no matter what they do, their their kids, his kids, uh, Lily and Alfie, they are middle-class kids. Mm. They're stage school kids. Um, and I i wonder if... I wonder what he thinks of them. I wonder if, if you know... And it's it's going to be the same for our parents, I suppose, because I consider myself working class, but I'm not as working class as my dad was, and I'm sure that our parents look at us and think, thank goodness they don't have to go through the things we did. Mm. But at the same time, we're we're just... There's a legitimacy... That we don't have. And it's... Yeah, the tension around that is fascinating to me. And I... Did it explore... Did the documentary talk about... What... Led McQueen... To take his own life? Did it even speculate? Did it bother to? Er...
1: It's not explicit, um, but there's clearly um, it does talk about an abusive past. It talks about a very very close relationship with, um, in a good way, I hast to add, with his mother. Don't don't confound the two. They're they're two separate things. And uh, yeah. of course, his when his mother passed away, I think from cancer. I don't recall. But he struggled with that, and uh, so so there was that that element too. But it it does. It's not explicit with what led him to sadly take his own life. Um, you're you're led to sort of believe that there's probably a number of factors that that all all paid played, played into it and again i think that's that's so much the better i think um it puts his art up front and um to the point where i i forgot it was to do with clothes you know um I didn't even think it was to do with fashion in the end i just thought he was a bloke who was coming up with some wicked mad ideas and putting on some great shows to articulate them I thought that was uh, I thought that was fun. But I mean the the relentless workload I suppose if there's one other thing you know he 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 was desperate to prove um, his position and prove uh, who he was but the workload I think this is probably true of the fashion industry as a whole just seemed utterly utterly relentless and it's one of those things that once you're on that treadmill you don't really get off and I don't mm. think it's like what a lot of bands these days can take if they've been established, if they've been around a while, they can take a couple of years off between albums and tours. Um, I I don't necessarily think that necess- that was on his agenda. Uh, he was he felt that he was necessarily able to do that kind of thing. You know, it just seemed just yeah. seemed incessant.
0: I was thinking about something similar. Having driven up north and driven back down, and when I say driven, I mean I was uh, uh, an often slumbering passenger. Thorpe, who was doing all of the driving, indebted to her. Difficult enough dealing with the general public when they're just walking around you. I I think about how we stopped a couple of times on the way up there and a couple of times on the way back. I couldn't be a stand-up comic, man. I'm glad I didn't go down that route because I couldn't live as they do. I couldn't eat the things at motorway service stations. And yes, it's not like it was in the 60s or the 70s or even in the 80s and 90s with the Happy Eater and a couple of sad, limp looking egg and cress sandwiches. But... If you want vegetables, if you want fruit, there ain't a lot going. Yeah. Um There's, I noticed the name of one thing which we'll check out next time we're travelling. But like, <clears throat> I I couldn't do that. I couldn't drive from town to town living on Greggs and Ginsters. I don't even know how to pronounce Ginsters. Is it Ginsters? I'm not even sure. <laughs> and McDonald's and you know just trying to top yourself up with pint after pint of orange juice. It's no wonder these people become alcoholics. Mm. And similarly like the dedication required of the fashion industry is most of this century scorn and criticism has been directed towards the size expectations placed upon models and such but I, I i separate myself from that and i i just i consider these people men and women i just think that that's an amazing dedication to keep yourself looking like that and it's why they age out at around 35ish it's astonishing that Kate Moss has done it for the best part of 3 decades mm. now I mean, she started when she was 16, 17. She's a working-class success story. She's just a council estate girl. I mean, think about this. What does Kate Moss sound like? (laughs) Have you ever heard her speak? Yeah. You know? Kate Moss, she's on a couple of tracks with... when she was dating someone or other. She might be on a Libertines track. I think she did something with Johnny Depp once. Mm. She's never acted in a significant capacity, has barely done cameos on television and in cinema, doesn't make vanity albums... I have a lot of respect for that, but yeah. But what I'm saying is just the dedication, and it is art as well. Um, I don't turn my nose up to fashion; most of it isn't for me. But haute couture is at the same level as concept cars, where it is. It's it's an expression of a genius's mind. Mm. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but before we before we move on from McQueen, right? How was it as a film? Because I've had this with so many documentaries. So Jim Jarmusch's *Gimme Shelter* about the Stooges, I didn't like it as a film. It was—it's nice to see stuff about Iggy and the Williamsons, but I didn't like it as a film. So how was *McQueen* as a film? Take it apart as a film, as a documentary. How was it?
1: They definitely—it's uh, split into various sort of chapters, and they have a beautiful. I can't remember if it's a, a, a like a render or a visual effect or or whatever but of course the the logo of the Queen fashion house is the skull and it was when he was alive it, you know it's been that that logo for for a very long time but there's these bookends these these um sections which are chapters and they they're all thematically um they're certainly chronological chapters of his life but they have thematic names and uh there's this wonderful image of of the skull, and there's something about that that just seems so appropriate. Of course, um, it's the spectre of of who he is and what he is, and and sort of looming large over the label that the fashion house that's there to this day. Um, and it's it definitely feels like a life that's been lived. Um, there's there's definitely characters that come throughout the narrative and i think like i say the importance of maybe sk- skipping elements of the biography and 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 just letting letting the art tell its own story and and that it, the art has a narrative in in, in of itself and there's characters that, that come in that the story around that so it does um it by and large it holds together pretty well um obviously with, with any documentary like this by its nature. Um, you're looking at very low-resolution camcorder stuff pretty much the whole way through. Um,
0: oh, I love that though. I love that. It's much preferable to the BBC Four effect, which oh, you yeah. know I dislike. With the where they
1: as a parallax um, effect, is what it's called. Yeah, they, when, when, they when it's a two-dimensional. Still images come to life. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a static image, <sighs> but they they cut out the foreground and the background and have them move at slightly different speeds so it gives it a sense Which, of movement and depth. And I don't mind yeah, when it's n- subtle, but I have seen people animate recent I can't remember what one I was watching recently, but I I did see them animate like the the hand that was holding a cup of tea or something and it then was like raised the cup and I was like that's just yeah. too eerie, that's ridiculous.
0: I don't I let the image speak for itself, you know. If you're showing me um, Luther Vandross and David Bowie on The Young Americans tour that's all I need. You don't need to make it more exciting, Michael Fucking Bay. Just leave it alone. So what? But getting back to the point, what you're saying is, you were satisfied with McQueen as a film.
1: Yeah, by and large, yeah,
0: yeah. Good, good. Because there is that uh, another good example is Selma, where Martin Luther King was a very important person. Is the film about him any good? Is Selma the film by Ava Duvernay very good? No, it's not. It's underserving it an important that the subject is important but the film isn't necessarily. Uh, Moonlight's a good film. Hidden Figures, I've got my reservations about. That story is an important story. That story is an interesting one and one which should be told, but probably by better filmmakers. Moonlight, however, yeah. I'm Barry Jenkins is all right on that one. All right. I'll I'll make sure I find McQueen and it won't be on no streaming platform either. I'll try to get to the cinema. And it sounds like the sort of picture that will be in awards contention and so hopefully we'll all get another chance December, January, February time.
1: Mm. Yes. And th- we'll keep watching and this. This is important
0: stuff. In fact, you know, if, if Brexit goes ahead as it, as it should do, then uh, this will be on the curriculum, I hope. And that's, that's the irritating thing, isn't it? Because <laughs> nobody supporting Britain leaving the EU is actually in favour of any of this good stuff by McQueen or Jarvis Cocker or the Chapman brothers. Anything that would actually make us realise, yeah, we are, this is a weird island nation. We've got our own crazy ideas, like Ian Jury. We've got these eccentrics, like John Lydon and Joe Strummer, uh, Nicholas Rogue, Edgar Wright. None of them are in favour of that. It's all this kind of, oh, well, 382 years ago, bloody blah, blah. (laughs) It's it's such a bloody shame, because uh, I'm not a patriotic fellow, uh, almost all of the time, but this little island has done so much, has produced so much and so many... Odd individuals, odd interesting individuals over the last 50, 60 years. There's an awful lot to be proud of. And and this fellow is one of them.
1: Oh for sure. Check it out. Keep watching the skies because it will probably get an awards run in, in, in sort of December time. So yeah, we'll keep you posted and try and check it out, Fletch. I'd urge you to do so.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Right. We've gone on. Ah, oh, I've had a terrific time though. It's really good it's <laughs> really good to get back into the evening glass saddle.
1: Absolutely, and um, loads of films uh, coming up in both of our uh, DVD collections and Laserdisc collections that we'll be covering, uh, as as we alluded to. So looking forward to a lot of that. And there's not too much
0: at the cinema. I did a little recce. We've got Sicario 2. Now, it's sans Villeneuve. There's no Roger Deakins, no Emily Blunt. Still got Brolin and Benicio. And Emily Blunt, Uh,
1: lack of Emily Blunt is a reason I might stay home. Yeah, I like I
0: like her as well. Yeah. That Krasinski is a lucky devil. Um, she's terrific in Five Year Engagement ah, when they're doing Cookie Monster and all of that. <laughs> um, what 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 can be said though in its favour is that Sicario Two will not suffer from lack of a female lead because the odd thing about Sicario is that it's so gender neutral. There isn't really it isn't necessary for Emily Blunt's character to be female that could, she could quite easily it could quite easily be a male character, Mm -hmm. which is good and bad. I mean, when James Cameron writes a female, he's writing a female. It's not just, like, for instance, the film Salt with Angelina Jolie was originally written for a male lead. Mm. And when she came on board, they changed virtually nothing about it Mm. and they just did it with Angelina. Mm. Um, But when James Cameron writes a female lead, it's important that she's female, like Ripley and Helen Tasker in True Lies and Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio's character in The, the Abyss. Um, that wasn't the case with Sicario, which is interesting in itself. So I will probably see the sequel. I do like the two dudes. Um, and the other picture was... ah, What's it called? Ideal Home by Andrew Fleming with Steve Coogan and Paul Rudd oh. as a gay couple. I'm not really sure this what they get up to. This
1: I haven't heard of this.
0: Oh, well, it's coming out soon. Uh, Both of these pictures are coming out soon. Sicario has already opened. I think Ideal Home uh, is, by the time you listen to this, will be out any day now. Now, Andrew Fleming has, to me, an interesting filmography, a threesome. His second picture is a decent one. He did The Craft and Dick back-to-back. Dick is one of the great unseen 90s comedies, full of second-rung SNL, and it's Kirsten Dunst, and Michelle Williams, before the both of them were the runaway successors that they are now, coming off the back of uh, Jumanji and Dawson's Creek. And they, in 1970s Washington DC, they accidentally become the dog walkers for Richard Nixon and uncover the Watergate scandal. <laughs> right, exactly. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun. So that's what Andrew Fleming did. And there's been some ropey stuff along the way. He did Hamlet too with Steve Coogan. Oh, so yeah. I think this one, Ideal Home, is well worth checking out. Alison Pill's in there as well. Always welcome, Alison Pill, Scott Pilgrim, mm-hmm. um, Alison Pill. You may recall one of the dopest things she did for me is uh, she when she was dating Jay Baruchel, she accidentally sent to everyone a topless picture meant only for him. I think she did this on Twitter, and her response was a kind of like, "Well, my bad." <laughs> I she dealt with it with such a plum, and uh, I, I will just before we finish talking about Andrew Fleming. I was just looking at his first ever picture produced by gail Ann Hurd, super producer behind some of Cameron's best work. Right, so this picture, Bad Dreams, which is how Andrew Fleming opened his account. Right, this is the synopsis. The plot follows a young woman who awakens from a 13-year-long coma and finds herself being stalked by the ghost of a cult leader who led a mass suicide by fire that she survived as a young girl. There's a lot going on there.
1: Yeah, it's a lot to swallow. (laughs) Now, I haven't seen
0: the film. It's got Harris Ulin, who is uh, burned at the stake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The judge from Ghostbusters 2. Uh, I'm going to have to find this bad dreams picture. Um, <laughs> cause that's, there's plenty going on there. Um, the One thing that I have got from my VHS Facebook group is uh, a developing interest, not yet affinity, it's not yet a full-blown affinity, but an interest for schlock. A mad schlock like that, like C-rated, straight-to-video nonsense from the middle of the 80s I never and thought I'd hear early nineties. I just—it's because I haven't—I haven't interacted with it at any level in the past, and like the more early Van Damme I see, the more I'm interested. I saw Bloodsport, I think it was, and Cyborg <laughs> definitely. And honestly, watching Cyborg by Pyun, yeah, I thought. This cinematography is pretty good, man. Yeah. Who shot this? Yeah, <laughs> I exactly. Yeah. I don't know if I'm just so so into good films that like I'm out the other end and I'm starting to find profundity in nonsense. Yeah, you could well be. But yeah, I never. I'm interested. I'm, on the, I'm I'm on the edge of something. Anyway, before I fall into that rabbit hole, then we, we must wrap up. It's been an absolute pleasure coming back to the Evening Glass, although that's a misnomer because I've had three beers.
1: Thanks very much for listening to The Evening Glass. I've been Luke Littleboy, joined by, with Fletcher Walton, I should say. Uh, And this is, of course, on the One Sensational Shot network. You can hear more from us on the website, onesensationalshot.com. There's lots of articles there, this, that, and the other. Just do get involved. You can, of course, uh, get in touch with us there, too, There's a contact form. Other means to get in touch. A lot of people like to stay in touch on the Facebook page if you search One Sensational Shot. There's also the Twitter, which our handle is at One Sensational. If you go to the website, you can check out our wares, VHSs, laser discs, various bits and bobs that help fund the day to day running of the site in lieu of a Patreon page. And that's uh, on the shop link on the website there. Of course, if you're listening on iTunes, if you're listening on Spotify, do leave us a review. It helps other people to uh, discover us and find out more about One Sensational Shot. Thanks very much indeed. In the meantime, this is Luke little Boy and Fletcher Walton, signing off.